Uh, hello, this is Gloria Spitia, Mexican American Community Archivist at the Austin History Center. Today is Monday, September the 16th, 2013. It is currently 10.28 a.m. I am conducting this oral history interview at the Austin History Center in the Holt Gallery and Reception Room. Today I have the pleasure of uh, interviewing two family members, brother and sister, and also members of the Brown Berets back in the 70s and 1980s. Uh, first, we're going to start with Susana. Susana, if you will give me your full name and spell it out for transcription purposes. Okay, it's Susana Renteria Almanza, that's S-U-S-A-N-A. Renteria is R-E-N-T-E-R-I-A, and then Almanza, A-L-M-A-N-Z-A. Okay, and Pio. My name is Sabino Pio Renteria, S-A-B-I-N-O-P-I-O. R-E-N-T-E-R-I-A. Okay. Now, if y'all will both tell me a little bit about your background, about your family. Um, y'all were both born and raised here in Austin, but give me a little synopsis of your family background, how many children there were, where you fit in that family structure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can go first. Okay. There were 11 children in our family. My, my father was uh, Mike, Miguel, really Miguel Renteria, and uh, my mom was named Tomasa Renteria. There were 11 in our family. Uh, the, there were two sets of twins. Uh, one set of tw the first set of twins, my older sister, her brother died at birth. So uh, that made us 10. Uh, we lived in a very, very poor uh, neighborhood. We we uh, grew up uh, in a in a house that most of our housing at that time was uh, was uh, really bordered in the in the uh, uh, 10th Street in East Austin. The uh, the housing conditions were really really bad at that time. People were really struggling, and with those kind of kids, I was the uh, uh, sort of like one, two, the third, fourth member of the fourth oldest, well, I was the youngest, fourth youngest, or whatever you want to call them, but uh, I grew up there in, uh, in uh, the Guadalupe neighborhood, and uh, we lived at 1205 East 10th Street. Uh, it was, uh, we were a block away from the house. We didn't have any kind of running water or restrooms. We had an outhouse in the back. So it was a very, very poor condition. I mean, everybody in that whole neighborhood didn't realize it, but we were really poor. I mean, we grew up in a, and we were discriminated against by everyone. I mean, the police hated us because we were just constantly, we were just a poor side of town and there was a lot of crime and we lived right off 11th Street, which was the, uh, the uh, sort of like the black red light district where all the uh, UT students would come down here on, on Saturdays or Friday, Saturday night and party and just did whatever they want to because there was uh, all the black uh, bars that were on 11th Street and they were, it was uh, one of the popular places for black kids to come and, and do whatever, I mean, not white kids to come from UT to come and drink and party and do whatever they wanted to do. 
What time period was that? About what years were they? This was uh, 19, uh, in the 60s and, and uh, mid-60s and early 50s. Mm. Okay, all right. Sonny? I, as, as my brother said, you know, I come from a large family, and, uh, and I was the middle, so I came right after my brother here. Um, and so what I really um, liked about our family is that we never had a dull moment. Because when you put us all together, we could play kick the can, football, baseball. And, we, and you put another big family together, you would think we were having a tournament or something. And the fact that we were, the Guadalupe Church was our backyard at that time. And so there was always an a, a empty field there, you know. Uh, so one thing is that we had a lot of space to, to roam. And when you come from a big family, you tend to be big explorers, too. So one of the things, uh, now, all summer long, we were always visiting all the different creeks. I don't think that there was a creek in Austin that we didn't get to to visit or explore and, and swim in or pick up tadpoles. And we lived at the, at the Palm School swimming pool all summer long from the moment the water was put in to the last drop was drained out. And so uh, I have to say that even though we came from a, a poverty background, like my brother said, we didn't realize it because um, we were we had so much to do, and you know it was real. I had those are my most cherished memories is uh, is always going places and doing things and maybe being we didn't own a vehicle, but sometimes my dad had uh, the company truck and being able to um, go to the theater up in Montapolis, you know the the outdoor theaters, the drive-ins and Drive-in. stuff. And so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a real good memory, but also it was a time when there was a lot of racial divide. Like my brother said, if you cross the street, that was the beginning of the African-American communities. Some people say that's where it ended. And, and we live where we say the Mexican community began. Some people say that's where it ended. But so you literally you would cross the street and you were the beginning of the African American community at least uh, to us. So uh, we got to experience a lot of time because there was uh, a lot of uh, racial tension at that time, and uh, there I think the real height of racism because uh, we were born in the fifties, and so when you look at that time period and growing up in fifties and sixties, um, that was. Um, a real volatile time period growing up. What about your parents? Give me a little uh, uh, background about your parents. And because both of y'all, well, I'm sure there's probably other members also in your family that are activists. But y'all are the ones that I know, you know, and, and I know that y'all are out there. I mean, you're, you're really, uh, it's in your heart and you're trying to do everything for your community, that pride. It, was that instilled in you by your parents, and you know what were they doing to make sure that y'all at least had a little bit better opportunity than they did? Well, we had a we my my dad only had a, a half first grade education. My mom had a, a, a third grade education. She only went to third grade. So, but they were really really faithful to the church. And they instilled that that discipline into us that you know we had to go out to the church and to help. And uh, I through the church, you know, through the CDC, the youth programs, you know, they, they 
through them, with their help, they, they taught us the, uh, the skills uh, and to fun- to live and function in this in this in in, in the environment we were at because uh, uh, the church had a lot to do with how and my dad would I mean we had to go to church I mean it was just like discipline on us you know and then my father worked really hard you know and Sunday was just a big treat for us. Because that was the time when we were, you know, the day before we killed a chicken, or you know, we raised chickens and stuff, and different types, and we would, you know, have a uh, a, a feast on Sunday. So that was a, a big day for us. And my dad used to love to watch football, so I used to sit there with him, and and we would watch football. And, uh, and then it was just a big. All the family would get together and have a good time on Sunday. So. Uh, you know, my mom was just a stay-at-home mom. She had all the kids. She had to take care of them. She, you know, she she did her best, considering you know the low income that we were having. Then my dad was with a full. We worked five and a half days, and sometimes overtime, and just to feed us. So you know, I saw the struggle that he went through, and my dad always told me, he said, "Don't be, don't no theft, pendejo." You know, he said, you stay in school, you get the education. Do you want to be like me, working, struggling like this? And that's that's what I got out of it. I, I said, no, uh, I'm going to listen to you, Dad, and I'm going to improve myself, and I'm going to finish high school and get me a good job. And that's that's what he kept that, you know, after me about, you know. And I, uh, the thing I got from him that even though, you know, we had to teach him how to write his name. As we went to school, we began to uh, teach them how to do things because before he used to just uh, sign with the X. But he was a very good, respectable man. Everybody would say, oh, Mr. Mike, his name was Miguel, but the African-American community loved him because uh, on special occasions like birthdays or first community, he would do a big cook. He would cook, and then he'd send plates to all the neighborhood. He'd say, go, andale, lleve los platos. And so everybody would love, everybody say, God, he, here is it's your festivals or your celebrations. But your dad always thought about the neighbors and always shared what he had. Even though it wasn't much, he, he always shared that. And then uh, he always voted. And to me, that was important. He would take us, and even at those times, you know, when I didn't know how much he understood, but he knew that. He taught us the importance of voting and being involved. You had to pay your poll tax. You had to pay your poll tax at that time. And so to to see that, even though my dad was a very humble, very simple man and and worked, like my brother said, from the moment the the, the sun wasn't even out, but he would work early in the morning because he didn't own a vehicle. He had to walk to work and then uh, walk back after long days of work. Uh, I think that he instilled a lot of ethics in us about taking care of your family the best way you could, no matter what. He was very respectful. He wasn't somebody that was, you know, cussing or stuff like that. He was a disciplinarian, but for a reason, he was a large family. And my mother, too, um, she always had, you know, was making tortillas, had food smelling. You, I mean, you, I remember lots of good times with, you know, frijoles and butter and mantequilla and doing the tortillas. And she was sort of like our doctor, you know, when 
uh, because we didn't have our personal doctor, but she knew about how to healing. She would have her spider webs and tell us, you know, not to knock them down. When we got cut, she would heal us. And the only time that we would have to uh, go to the emergency room was because it, the cut or something was so big that she couldn't heal it. Uh, but she was very spiritual, you know. Uh, we had our altar there in the house, and we prayed. And during stormy days, we would, you know, she would have us there praying. And so there was a lot of praying going on in the house. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, she had her ways. If it was lightning, you know, we covered the mirrors and stuff like that. And uh, But... I think that was so important because we always knew that when we came home, our mom was going to be there, Mm -hmm. that there was always somebody there at the home, and and that, uh, to me, that was really important is that uh, we know that she was always doing things, but that she was always there, and uh, she had a garden, and to me, that was real important. Like Marissa said, we had, you know, our chickens. We were real sustainable back then. We had our garden that, you know, she we would grow and work on, you know, every year. And so I think that those real basic things about not forgetting uh, where we come from and then working the earth, sustaining ourselves. Uh, we used to go, we were farm workers. We'd go pick cotton during the summer to make, you know, extra money and stuff for the whole family. Now, my mom, she was always home with and the my, and my And dad. mom always used to get up early in the morning and had all the tacos ready for us to go. And we were living right next to the Torquero, the truck. So we had to, I mean, at 5 o'clock in the morning, we were gone, you know. So she would get up at 4 and make all the, the tacos in ready for us to just... You know, as I listen to y'all telling those stories, mm-hmm. your lives in, a, in, in so many ways is very similar to mine. Mm-hmm. My family, the same way. My parents, mm-hmm. same way. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, we lived in a two bedroom, seven kids, mm-hmm. and two adults, two bedrooms. Didn't have running water, yeah. outdoor, you know, mm-hmm. everything. Very similar. Mm-hmm. The only thing was, we lived a very sheltered life. So when they would take us, to the area on the Vivianos because we lived across the river mm-hmm. there in Victoria, or Guadalupe River. So when we would take us to the little tenajo for them to go buy the groceries, mm-hmm. they would say, lock the doors, put up the windows, you know, don't talk to no one. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and later it found out that a lot of those people that, you know, the kids that I was growing up with, would turn out to be that we were told don't talk to no one would turn out to be doctors and lawyers and all of that yeah. so I mean so you know I, I can I, I know what you're talking about because this is very very similar also but entirely different right. you know when smaller community is so different from from a larger community now let me ask you about how did y'all become involved in the Brown Berets what was, what Susana was the first one. She introduced me to uh, Ernesto Fraga, mm-hmm. which was uh, sort of, I, I guess, I'll let her explain that. Cause, yeah. uh, well, I, you know, I met uh, Ernesto back because I used to work at the East First Street Neighborhood Center uh, with James Ramirez and John Trevino and Gonzalo. It was like the hub. It was that it was where all the activism was happening in our community was back then was the neighborhood centers. And at that time, Ernesto was working at the neighborhood center in South Austin Neighborhood Center. And so uh, we got to know each other and date each other and stuff. And then um, about, I think in 73, uh, he invited me to go to a Brown Beret meetings that they were putting the Brown Berets together and they'd been meeting at... uh, 
Cristo Rey Church on 2nd Street, and I think back there was Father Lani Riz. He was the one. He was real activist priest, and so and he'd been active in so many things, but he was sort of like helping to sponsor or hosting uh, the Brown Berets, letting them meet there at the church. Uh, and so I said, well, sure, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go check it out and see how things are going, uh, what they're doing. And so uh, we, I went to the meeting, and that's what they were talking about. They were talking about, you know, police brutalities and how do we need to work with our youth? You know, how do we need to protect our neighborhood? The barrio was the key word. And, you know, and at that time, there was a whole issue about carnalismo. There was a lot about brotherhood and sisterhood and about uh, la familia and and trying to improve the communities and this was all things that I believed in as growing up was you know I was all about family because that's where I came from family we knew other families and families and so to me it was always about bettering the community because I had that experience of you know living in a segregated you know community and then also being because we were you know poor and we spoke a second language and all that so I've grown up understanding a lot of different things in the way how society was and so when I saw a lot of young people wanting to make change I was very inspired about it I had already been involved at in the high school, you know, organizing to help organize a Chicano walk out there, trying to change student government at the high school. So I'd already been uh, very active in my life. And so when I got to the Brown Marais, I thought, oh, wow, this is another group of young people wanting to make a lot of changes. How old were you at that time? Well, I had to be about 20, 21. And so you, I was, how did she recruit you? What happened, I, I was, I, I had become really politically active with the Raza Unida Party. I mean, I was just, uh, I, you know, all what they stood for was, you know, the, the fight that we had about immigration, police brutality. I mean, it was just, you know, I, to me, and I was working, I had just graduated from high school in 1970, and I was working at Education Service Center Region 13 that I had a job in. And so I, you know, this was one of the, the, the greatest things that happened to me because, you know, we had some really active ladies in that organization there that, I mean, Bob Perkins' mother was working there. She was one of the creators of Carlos Calenda. And they, I just was just floored to, to see higher up Mexicanos, you know, Mexican-American being in a, a position where they're highly educated, respected, and I'm going, oh my God, this is just this is wonderful, you know, that they was treating me, a Mexicano that was always looked down upon, even as somebody, you know, with respect. And they said, oh, mira, they would look at my face and said, puro indio, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, but I, at the same time, growing up there, and, and, and we moved up to Inks Avenue, which is between 9th, and, and uh, 8th Street on Navasota, which is across the street from the state cemetery, I, we were constantly being picked on by the police. There was nowhere we could drive around without getting stopped, being assaulted, being told, hey, Mexican, you know, and, and getting put in jail. And I mean, I was caught driving. The, the biggest insult was I was 
two months away from being 21, I had a quarter bottle of a beer bottle that was empty with a little bit in the back seat, you know, that was left there, and I got stopped. And they said, and this, they said, they charged me for minor possession and took me in jail. And I, I'm here, I already had my wife. I had a son there, and I'm going, wait a minute, what are you doing? And he said, y'all Mexicans, you know, shut up. And they, they put me in jail. So I was really frustrated with the way that we were being treated. And gave me the outlet to go out there. And, and I, since then on, you know, I'm part of the Democratic Party now, but, you know, I really believe that that was going to be the solution to get our respect that we want. And that's what motivated. And then when I met, you know, Ernesto Fraga to Susana, and that was like in by about 72 or something like that, 73. And, and we, and he was telling me about what his plan was. I said, this is great because I want to be part of that. And because we need to tell the police to quit abusing our people. We were getting just, I mean, we were getting beat up. We were just, it was our young, the young people back then, they could never say anything back to a police officer if they got stopped. If they did, automatically jail or in a beating. Mm-hmm. And no one would say anything about it. They would just say, oh, those damn people, they deserve it, you know. And that's what frustrated me, and that's why I joined the parade, because I know that in, in the power relies as a as a, a neighborhood that gets together, and with with all of us together, we were going to stop this injustice that was going on. And it was, I mean, it, at that time in Austin, you could not go across Congress, west of Congress, without at night. Don't be. They would tell you, don't be caught on the other side of Congress at night because you were either going to beat up or put in jail. Mm-hmm. Um. So when you got together, met uh, Ernesto, and then the formation of the Brown Berets here, about how many members were there at that point, at the starting point? I think that there was a good, I would say, a good 15 people at that time. I think there was always had been a core about, what, about 10 to 15, maybe 20, a good core group. Because there's always people who come to activities and meetings, but a core that was real active, I would say like 15 to 20 people who were very active and always doing things. So how did you, Susana, because I know uh, that you were one of those individuals that, for the Latinas' perspective, getting involved and then also standing for your principles and saying, hey, you know, this is what some of the issues that we should be dealing with. Uh, how did you come about in trying to get the other members to sort of follow you in that path? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the things where there were quite a bit of uh, young ladies that were part of the berets, and so one of the things was... Um, how could we work, um, you know, uh, the women together to do programs? Because one of the programs we did was like uh, feeding the youth during summertime. Uh, because one of the things where uh, a lot of our kids now, now we're getting into the 70s, 
And a lot of uh, parents that used to be stay home were no longer could afford to stay home. Now we're talking about two parents working and a lot of the children kind of being hanging around. And like I said, we would hang around at, at Palm School, you know, all, from morning to day. Our situation was different because we could go home and our mom would be there and should have food ready. So we started this whole uh, program where we'd make fideo and beans and, and tortillas and have a whole group of people, and, and we would feed the kids. And then they began to know that at lunchtime they could come to the Centro Chicano and that there was going to be a meal happening. And that kind of progressed to having other activities for kids, you know, saying, what can we put together? other members who had connections to to people who had um, like ranches in Leander or certain programs. It was making those connections of how can we take our kids out of the barrio and you know, show them other places, but happy places, and do campouts and stuff like that. Uh, it was working with them, and it was also working at that time. You know, Par Hernandez uh, was sort of like the chair or the leader of the Brown Berets, and it was also working with them to say, well, if we're talking about building the family, we also have to make sure that the females are involved, not just in the cooking and doing the work, but also as being the spokesperson. That they had to be sort of like a duality. If you know, if Paul was going to speak, they needed to be also a woman speaking because we were supposed to be representing the family, and so that we needed to have, you know, a male and female presence uh, all the time. Uh, and those were issues that were also uh, discussed in the state level as the Brown Berets got together and at the state chapters uh, to talk about the whole structure and the whole representation and, and the different programs. So, you know, one of the things that I find very interesting is that y'all, in a way, were taking the motherly approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, how many of the Latinas in the Brown Berets at that time were married? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I think a lot of them were still uh, not married. They got married during the Brown Beret process, like Crystal Mendes was Elias Mendes' uh, sister. She got married during the Brown Berets to another Brown Beret uh, guy. Angie Mendes at the time, her brother uh, Elias Mendes was in. She wasn't married at the time either, right? She no. got married later on. Yeah, but uh, Eli and Angie. Oh, I'm sorry. Eli and Angie got married. That's right. No, no. They were, Angie uh, was Angie Torres, but she wasn't married at the time. But did they get married during the Brown Berets? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, so so relationships started from there. From but, within the membership. Yeah, but at the time, uh, there was uh, a lot of the um, young people were not married, uh, like Joanne uh, Salas. She wasn't married at the time, but they grew, and then she Paul married. Was, Paul was married. Paul was married. But yes. his wife wasn't a boy. But his wife wasn't. So there are a lot of relationships. I think. Um, manifested during the Brown Beret struggle, and then they did. There was uh, a marriage, but at the beginning, I remember most Sam of the girls were single. Sam, there was there was a couple married people, but uh, the wives weren't that really active in the Berets at that time because they, they were raising a family. Oh, yeah. so. that, that's why I say the yeah. the girls, the single ladies or young ladies, they were single. Then along the process, got married. Some of, like he said, the guys who were. Their wise words, uh, and, and we did a we you know we were at that time we were facing a, a big 
uh, uh, problem with spray paint. Our kids were, mm -hmm. were using, yes. doing spray paint. So we were doing a lot of outreach work, you know, with, and we had younger people like uh, Zeke Vada and Eli Mendez, and those are the kind of people that had saw the discrimination in the school district and how they were being treated and how, you know, everybody was just, every year got promoted, whether you learned how to read or not, they didn't care, they put you in remedial class. They would say, oh, just, you know, give you a fifth grade book and say, just read that and just be quiet and we'll give you a B and you don't even have to bother, you know, just as long as you behave, we'll just pass you on up. and. They, they, uh, and at the same time, we were seeing a lot of the little junior high kids and uh, elementary kids that were a little older getting into spray paints, dipping glue, uh, gasoline, which is, you know, we were, so, you know, we said, we need to stop this. We need to stop this abuse of our kids, and we need to educate them. So that was one of the functions that when we, that, uh, that Central Chicano took on, and uh, it was started by the Brown Berets, but the Central Chicano was an organization, too, that was, we had control of the, I mean, we were started Central Chicano, but we let that be the outlet where we would do all the outreach work. We would uh, work with the kids and at the same time deal with the political issues that we were facing because police brutality was really horrible. In fact, we're, we're, our group, the Brown Berets, were the first group in Austin that started filming police officers. We would have a little patrol, and every time they would stop someone and just be across the street filming, they would get so upset. And But we, we got a grant, and we bought a video camera. And we would just sit there, and and anytime, you know, we had a little hotline. Anytime they call us, we would go out there and just film them, you know. But that was later on, not at the very beginning. But as 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 we and we did a we had a, a hotline for police brutality that they could call in at the central, you know. So as a matter of fact, just to follow up on that, is that the brown berets really are the reason we now have. Uh, the uh, police review commission now, the police monitor, that was one of the main recommendations that came uh, from the Brown Berets was a, a police review board, but of course at that time we wanted to, them to have subpoena uh, powers. Uh, so way back, the Brown Berets was the one who brought up that issue, uh, who protested, and you always see that, you know, community review board now, is because there was a height of, like Bill says, of police brutality in our community, and um, something needed to be done about it. That's why it was like, it didn't matter where you went, you know, you're always harassed by the police, and especially at night, you know, it was very controlled as to where you could and could not uh, be at. And, and so I think that it was the Berets, like you said, initiated these projects for the youth, looking at, you know, youth development, looking at taking care of the next generation, looking at um, the police and the police monitoring the review board. Those are all changes that have now come about, but that... Uh, the Brown Berets really worked to initiate, you know, a long time ago in, this, in the early 70s. How did they, y'all decide that Central Chicano would be located where it was? Uh, did y'all just happen to see a vacant building and say, well, that's, you know, 
that's what we would like to, to rent. I'm assuming y'all were renting at the time. That's what we would like to have this, or was there a reason for that location? I don't think, I think that someone had it that, that I can't remember who owned the house. So it was somebody who knew the person uh, and who supported uh, the Brown Beret issues uh, because it was the first one was right there on um, San, Marcos. San Marcos Street. And so it was uh, somebody knew someone who had that property and who was willing to uh, let us use it because I know it was very minimal of what was being paid, you know, they probably could have made two or three or four times the amount. So with somebody who really supported um, the group and the different, what we were working for and stuff, uh, that made it all happen. That, yeah, that first place, uh, we, when, we kind of, there was a period that the berets kind of just like split because there was disagreement. So we ended up that's how the, we moved out of the, we actually didn't move, we ended up closing the, the, the San Marcos Street. And then another incident happened where uh, uh, a police officer, a, a parent called a police officer, he was having a problem with his son right there behind uh, uh, on Tata Chavez, which was First Street, Johnny Boys. And the father ended up getting killed by the police officer. And here's the guy that called the police officer, you know, and he ended up getting shot by the police officer. And this was just outrageous, you know. So we had a big demonstration, uh, marched down to the police, and and through the help of the, uh, the what's that, the Winpah stores, the Methodist yeah, the Presbyterian Church, mm -hmm. they offered us a building the house there on, on Willow Street, right next to it, which is now a, a, a daycare center. Uh, and that's where we set up our, our shop. They, Because of the church there, they offered the building to us free. So we moved our Centro Chicano there. So. Now, in Centro Chicano, when y'all did move, if I, can, if I can ask, what did create that little split between that you know, said, well, okay, we're going to move to another location. And was it after or before the fire? Or am I getting to different no, locations? The fire was way after. after what happened, yeah. the split happened was because uh, we were demonstrating there across for Palm School. Palm School had closed, and Barry Gillingwater was wanting it to, 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 uh, really that, that was the, the end part of it. It was more of the, the, the funding that we were getting uh, stifled, the speakers, the leadership were getting stipends to go out and speak and getting money, and uh, we were running really low on paying the rent and the utilities and all that. So we wanted that money to go into, you know, part of that money go into funding the place and. Uh, the 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 leadership said no because we're earning the money. I, we're we got families to feed and all that. So that's what happens that we had to end up closing that place. So. Well, Centro Chicano, I know from what I hear mm -hmm. and what I've read, had a great impact on the community. I uh, Ramon Maldonado came in one day to talk to mm -hmm. me uh, after the. Uh, the MAC Oral History Project, the program mm -hmm. that we did at the MAC, 
And he told me how he had been one of those young kids sniffing mm-hmm. glue and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I was really taken back by him because uh, he wouldn't allow me to do an old history interview. And I understood that. And as, but he did bring me some of his artwork, some pictures of his mm-hmm. artwork and articles of, of kids that he worked with and everything. But one of the things that he brought me also was a photograph of him being a, a Boy Scout, um, was it a yeah, leader? Or Scout leader, leader. thing. And that really floored me because here he was talking about himself as a little boy, being a troubled youth, being blue sniffing and everything, and he was accepted into Centro Chicano and was told, you do away with all that, you do what we tell you, mm-hmm. you will, you know, you will learn, you will do all of this, and that's what happened. And so it was at that point that I really started pushing, you know, for more information. Uh, because I get it from him mm-hmm. as, you know, it changed me. It changed me. And um, like I said, I wish he would have allowed me to do the interview, but I understood. He's a great artist. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the story, it, it was one impact with him. Now, Susana, I know that you, because of your involvement with the Brown Brigade and your wanting to make sure that children were always, you know, mm-hmm. taken care of and that y'all did programs and everything. Tell us about the uh, Leander uh, field trip that you took and the kids at Zavala Elementary. Yeah. Oh. So what we did is uh, we, we took, uh, several times, we took a big group of the, the kids uh, down to uh, Leander and uh, Elvia. Remember Elvia Castro? Mm-hmm. She had the connections, and there was uh, there was a lot of people that that knew certain that worked with uh, certain camps, and they were able to say, "Well, we can get that camp for a weekend." And so we'd all, you know, they get to camp out. You know, for a lot of kids, it was the first time like going somewhere fun to camp out, where you're not not working in the fields or something. You're just camping out and. And we did a whole, you know, list of activities that we were going to have, get up and make pancakes for the kids in the morning, and uh, then do hay rides, do sack races, just all kinds of just really fun stuff, you know, just have a good time uh, and let the kids be out in the nature also, be out in an open environment, even though a lot of our communities it's not it's not as full as it is yeah. today. It was pretty open, but this was even more open because you're out in a ranch and you're getting to do a lot of different. You're things. out in the country. It's it's still yes, there. The it's country. real beautiful little place. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we're out in the country. A lot of these kids never have left the neighborhood. They didn't yeah. even know what what it was like anywhere else. So, mm-hmm. and and that was the, the things that that we want we did. I I by that time I had already gotten a job with IBM. And IBM would give us $1,000 for community funding. So I would apply for these grants and, you know, and to buy all kinds of little items. And, and one year we were able to take the kids to Six Flags. Mm-hmm. So your employer supported your efforts in what you were doing with the Brown Berets then. I yeah. mean, if they're giving you grants or stipends mm-hmm. and, you know. Yeah, through the Centro Chicano. So Centro yes. Chicano. So that was a good thing, mm-hmm. to have a big corporation like that. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back to this field trip and mm-hmm. to others. I mean, uh, here there were members of the Brown Berets accompanying y'all. 
yes. going with you. Mm-hmm. So that meant that the parents of these kids trusted you. Oh, yeah. oh, that y'all would take care of them because they were going to be gone for mm-hmm. about the, a, a week weekend. or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then going, you know, in vehicles to the location and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kids will be kids. And sometimes yeah. they're going exploring <laughs> and, you know, they get lost or whatever. But uh, that was another thing. Now, we do have a photo yeah. here of that. Yeah. Uh, can you... Um, and this is uh, one of the photos uh, that camp out in Leander. Uh, it says June 74 here, um, you know, that it, it got uh, printed here. And uh, you can see that uh, I believe right here they're getting ready to go on a hayride. So you'll see, you know, all the little kids and then uh, some of the uh, members there also uh, going along with them uh, for this hayride. And that's why we're saying that. Uh, like Bill was saying, there's a lot of times they never got to do things like this. This was like their only outlet uh, to go like all together in a big group and be riding around at the camp and being out on the ranch. It's a beautiful sight and stuff. And so uh, it was. This was something that we did several times. Was always trying to bring the youth and um, getting them exposed to uh, different areas because um, that was one of the things the Brown Berets was about. It was about. Uh, looking at uh, the future generations yeah. and looking care of our youth. And because, uh, you know, we were family structured, we were always about taking care of our own brothers and sisters, and, mm-hmm. and we were preaching that we were all one family, you know, whether it was blood relations or not. We were in that time when we were talking about canalismo, so all the children were our children, and so we worked to, to try and, uh, you know, do activities, to do fun activities, education activities, teatro chicano, you know, uh, making sure that our kids uh, didn't get stuck onto all the, the glue sniffing, like he was saying, the paint sniffing, all the stuff that was going around in our communities, trying to steer them in a, in a different direction. And, and whenever we saw each other, you know, we I mean, it was like hugs. We would just hug every, you know, it was like family. We just, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we, you know, we really... You know, when we saw someone, either a kid or, you know, your friend, you know, it's a big hug and, you know, glad to see you. You know, it was just like a big family. So that that was that was what, you know, kept us together. And the kids really saw that we respected them. You know, we never was, uh, you know, we were not a. We weren't like authority, like you got to be here, be quiet doing that. No, we, we just treated everybody just like equal. Uh, by that time, did you have a family? Were you already married or still single? I was married. I had uh, by that time. I was. I, I had. I had two sons. So in a way, too, being a father and mm-hmm. you know, doing this, it helped in the family structure. Too. Oh yeah, and they were. To- they were part of the. They were there too. I always took them with us. Um, Now, we have a document here also that that was very much a part of what uh, actually organized the Brown Berets in in Austin and and chapters throughout Mm -hmm. uh, Texas and actually, I think, uh, Colorado and some of the other some other states also. Let's talk about the manifesto and how, what impact it had on the Austin chapter and how it came about that y'all became part of this a document. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, this, uh, the Brown Beret uh, Manifesto, uh, you know, one of the things that people would do was uh, they would get together at least the different chapters from the state of Texas. And one of the big meetings they had was looking at putting together the manifesto and then looking at what were the issues. And, and you would find that no matter if you were in McAllen or San Antonio or Dallas or Houston or Austin, that the issues were the same. So when we talked about it, we talked about police oppression. That was a big issue and how we were going to address that and, you know, how we were going to work with the community and, uh, you know, and the community, like I say, the community review board was a really big issue uh, for all the different cities in the state of Texas. The other thing was uh, we looked at, um, of course, uh, expanding the Brown Berets chapters and looking at these issues. And then we looked at uh, immigration was another issue we looked at because immigration and immigration rates have been going along for a very long time. I know a lot of the new generation think it's a new thing, but the immigration rates had been happening back then. Uh, and so one of the things that the Brown Berets wanted to look at is how do we address the immigration issue and also making sure that all the materials were bilingual that they were in Spanish and English was very, very important to us. And then we look at the whole issue of education to make sure that there, what we want to make sure is that our history and our culture were also being in the books because nothing about us was in any of the books or any of our history, any of our education. So that was a big issue to make sure. And also to make sure that... Uh, that we were also becoming like the teachers and the professors within the education system. That was a, a real big. And then housing, we looked at housing, looking at affordable housing. I mean, that's been a long issue for us, or, or just fair housing, just looking at, uh, you know, housing that that was um, economically safe and, you know, was a safe place uh, for our families to grow in and stuff. And then we look at prison reform just because the majority, and still to this day, uh, it was our people who were in prison. And so how do we address that whole issue of reforming it so it's actually rehabilitation and not just spending your time there in the prison. And then we looked at, uh, looked at medicine, making sure that there were free clinics, health clinics, having access to the clinics and so forth. And then we looked at communications that we need to put together our own media, our own newspapers, our own radio shows, our own TV, but look at so that we could tell our side of the story. And so communication was uh, a real big uh, thing for us uh, also. So, I mean, when you look at, and you look at the Brownberry Manifesto, those are still the issues we're working on today. Health, education, in housing. We're still dealing with police, you know, police brutality yeah, yeah. and killing. At that, you know, you also got to remember at that time too that, that you know the farm workers were. It was a big movement too, because you know in Texas, you know they they still had the short holes that they they cut the handle off the mm. hole. The campesinos would work out there and, and work in the valley, and they had to you know in order to make sure they worked, they they give you the little short hole, and you had to go out there and work. And we were demonstrating. We were, the the berets got was one of the main, main force behind the demonstration because we were not going to be intimidated by police force. You know, the Campesino, 
you know, a lot of more Mexicanos that would work in the fields and, you know, they would get scared if they see the, the Texas Rangers and the DPS officers. So we would go out there and be sort of like the guard during the demonstrations. And we would walk and make sure, and we had our little walkie-talkies and communicate and bullhorns. And so we were more like a, we, with, with the manifestos behind us, and we were more like the, the guard of the demonstration of La Raza movie. Whenever we, we used to go down to Midlands, we used to go down to the Valley, we went to Houston, because the activists there in those little towns were constantly find, finding themselves committing suicide, they would say. They would pass out on the track and get run over by the train. They would find them hanging in the cells. You know, that was a lot of of what was going on at that time. So, you know, we said we're, we got to the point at one time where we had a, a constitution convention where we declared ourselves independent, <laughs> you know, of, of, of Texas. Uh, and we curated a salon. A salon was, was supposed to be, because that's how fed up people was. We had a big convention in El Paso one time that declare our independence because we weren't going to take it anymore, you know. So if it would take a, a whether we had to be a war at war, we were going to do it because we weren't going to take the abuse anymore that we were receiving at the hands of the of, of what we call the rinches, the, the white police force in Texas, you know, so. Of the uh, manifesto, I mean, there's about how many, eight? I, I can't remember how many of the, the goals that y'all were setting out. Yeah, there's. What would be, let's say, four that y'all really considered as a chapter to be the priority? And well, we'll, we'll say four, but there could be yeah. more, but we'll Yeah, I think that one of the priority was um, the whole issue of the police oppression was uh, really, that was a real big uh, priority in education was very up there uh, with it, and um, and then housing was uh, another big issue. I, I don't think we labeled like youth development or youth, but that would de that's definitely I think just in all of these issues, uh, economic development was another uh, big one. But I think uh, I think the communications were more up there just because we did have like young people that was teaching us about videos about we had access to people who who put in out the newspaper or people who had access to radio. So communications was something uh, also that was real heavy up there. But I, I think the number one issue was, of course, police oppression. Uh, but then I would say education uh, came right out there, communications. And, jobs. And, uh, yeah, economic development, mm -hmm. jobs and that stuff. That was another. That was, yeah. Those are, are really top issues. And, and the other ones kind of feed or they go parallel to them, you know. You can't really. Uh, but like I said, we never did, even though we didn't have, like, youth development or youth leadership, it was very much there because everything that we did was about youth and it was about uh, working with them at some capacity, like like whether it was giving them the skills, whether it was 
you know, uh, showing them uh, different models of programs. We did a lot of workshops, like knowing your educational rights, knowing your rights as a student. Um, the Teatro Chicano was like doing a lot of role play, you know, educating what people would now call probably popular education. Using those tools, those are the things that uh, we did uh, back there during the, the Brown Berets. Now, how did y'all manage? Again, going to there was just there weren't that many members, uh, but how did y'all manage to get all these supporters to march with y'all to, you know, to be out there with you? I mean, uh, somebody would get beaten up by the police, and by that night or the next day, got people marching. You got, I mean, hundreds of them. How did y'all do that? Well, I, you know, like I said, we even though we were members, we all had families. So, like, we came from ten, uh, from a family of ten. So, that time the family is already growing, and I think all the other families are very much connected. So, in any way, like like we were saying, even though the spouses were, but you know, maybe they had other family members that belonged to that family. So it wasn't really hard. And besides, the people were just looking. The the people wanted to be active and wanted to do, and they might have not wanted to be in the everyday affairs, but when there was like a beating or a killing, everybody in the radio understood it. You know, it didn't take much to for it to spread like wildfire, you know, with people who did have phones, people who visited. I think there was a lot more communications happening, even though, you know, people talk about the Internet and all that. No, there was a lot of communications going. People basically went to the same stores. They went to the uh, same churches. You know, they went to the activities. I mean, there was a lot of uh, talk always happening, and there were, like, radio stations that announced it and there was newspapers and so I think that the support was there all the time they, there's always the people waiting like okay who's going to lead it and then they come in you know they're willing and that's exactly the way it was is if there was an issue all you had to say there was going to be a protest at the police station or whatever and the people were ready because it was really impacting their families but they weren't taking that leadership role but their families, like you said, there was not too many people who, who hadn't gotten harassed by the police in one way or another. And so they understood that issue very well. Or well, been discriminated, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know when I interviewed Frances Martinez for the MAC, Oldest mm-hmm. Project, mm-hmm. Frances, I mean, she talked about how the voice was given to that community and her being much older individual, but through Paul Hernandez, who went and showed her and her husband how they could get money to repair their home and the zoning issues and all of that, and that was shown through them uh, to them by the Brown Berets. So she said, you know, they were going to do anything but to help, mm-hmm. even though they felt that they didn't have the knowledge uh, and couldn't really communicate you know, as well as the younger, they were still going to do whatever possible to support mm-hmm. uh, whatever y'all were doing. Uh, and this, again, it's it's amazing because I go back to the the ages that, you know, y'all weren't that old. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and yet the older generations, the older individuals listening to the younger generations, mm-hmm. and um, which is another thing, too, uh, when I'm in working with this project and doing the 
photo exhibit that we will have at Terrazas Branch Library. And I mean, we're limited to the number of photographs that we can have there. So I, I mean, you know, to me, it was, there was many, many more that I could choose from thanks to you, Susana, and to Gilbert. Um, but there were some uh, photographs that Gilbert sent me of some young boys. And y'all, along with the Brown Berets, started a youth parade mm -hmm. chapter. Right. Uh -huh. So tell me a little bit about that, because I find that fascinating. And um, I would love to get one of those individuals, I thought about it after I saw that, on the panel to see what impact it might have had on them and in their lives and what they're doing today. But anyway, can y'all talk about the youth parade chapter as to how that got started? Well, I, it, it really got started when we moved to the, uh, uh, the uh, we always work with the kids, you know, the little kids, but uh, it got started there at the, um, on the Cesar Chavez when we were moved to the Cesar Chavez, because uh, when Pastor was expanding their daycare center, so the church kind of asked us if we could find another place, so we moved to the to Cesar Chavez location. And we had a whole bunch of kids that were that we had worked with that were getting into their teens, you know, so so we said, let's start a junior brown race. And that was like Zeke Yvonne and 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 Eli and them was working with those kids. And we would have what was so nice about these the Junior Brown Berets is that we could have fundraisers now, and they would do the work and raise money, and we would use the money for them. You know, so. <laughs> I mean, it almost sounded like the Catholic Church, you know, <laughs> the CCD, which is probably based. You know, that's how we grew up. Yeah. So you know, we started having fundraisers and letting the kids make decisions on what they want to do with the money and give them some responsibilities and stuff like that, and and that helped because also their friends started coming over. So we had no problem, you know, if there was demonstration, they know that we were going to take care of them. Yeah. So, I mean, we also, now you can, you can look at some of these kids and, and they have white hair now and all that. <laughs> it's, well, and that's the thing, when I look at some photographs, mm -hmm. because just recently I came across, and I think it was maybe one of yours, or maybe one of Gilbert's, but I think it might have been one of yours from my contact sheets. Mm -hmm. There's... It seems like they always paired these young people, these youth, with a member of the Brown Berets that had been a member for some time. Because you see that. And you see um, Paul Hernandez, there's a photo image of Paul Hernandez with two young boys next to him. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought, well, that's just, you know, some kids that are... But then when I found about the, the Junior Brown Berets, uh, that's when I put two and two together. But it really, it seems like as I look at some of those, it seems to me that, you know, those kids were wanting to be right there and mm -hmm. supporting and learning oh, yeah. and learning about that. Now, another image that I got from your contact sheets was the, uh, the Brown Berets, uh, uh, apparently there must have been a, uh, uh, some type of a, maybe a caravan 
maybe a demonstration and keeping cars from going across, maybe a festival beach or whatever. There's a caravan of young kids on bicycles, mm -hmm. and it's like a shame. Mm -hmm. And the cars are on the other side, and you know, to me, that was something else to see these kids on these bicycles, not letting anyone go across. Mm -hmm. And I, I, again, that's just an image that I keep in my mind, and it will be part of the um, the online website exhibit that we're going to add. But unusual, mm -hmm. again, it's kids, and so that is the one thing. Uh, another thing that I found. Of course, I don't know him very well, but Shorty and the Corvettes, y'all had him perform at the opening of the second... Um, uh, Lupertis. Uh, yes, mm. yes, and he was performing there, so he's going to be one of those individuals also that that image is going to be in the exhibit because, again, you get you know uh, different perspectives of how people were supporting. Now, in reference to supporting, who were some of the community leaders that you can name right now that were out there supporting the Brown Berets? Whether they be elected politicians or, you know, uh, individuals in the community that were really well known. Were there some that you can name that were very supportive of the Brown Berets? There was, there was very few elected yeah. politicians because they didn't like the word Chicano in the first place. You know, uh, they always argue about that. I was a more political person than in the group. You know, every time something politically happened, they would blame me for not talking to these guys. You know, you know, Gonzalo and John Trevino and Richard Moya. You know, some of the first people that got elected, and I, I would say, hey, you know, I have to work for these guys because they're our leaders. You know. And the only way we're gonna we're gonna be able to get get along and get things is to support these guys. But there was a time that you know we came up with the idea, uh, you know, Paul Hernandez and and that the other groups were really fed up with our politicians at that time. They were just, and I said, okay, well. The only way that we're going to win is we need to go out there and start organizing the precincts. So we ran a whole bunch of people as our precinct chair. And we, we got people elected. So then we went after the Tejano Democrat. We were going to replace them. And we, we were one vote short <laughs> of taking over the whole political group of Tejano Democrats here in Austin. Oh, back then it was Mexican-American Democrats of changing the whole leadership. That's how strong we have gotten to a point. We got Marcos de Leon elected as county commissioner, you know, and so that's what, you know, through the political process. And so we didn't have too many political people that really were supporting out the Bromberg. We had a lot of community leaders like Senor Rendon, Pete Martinez, yeah. Francis Martinez, you know, uh, people that from the community that were uh, of good standing that were supporting us, but through the political politicians, we didn't. They they didn't trust us. So that was the the split that we had here in Austin. 
And I think, too, that, like, like you said at the beginning, we didn't have any politicians because I think Richard Moyer was the first one, and John didn't get into, I think, 74 or 70. I can't remember, like, the year. So it wasn't until later till people really get it, uh, got elected. But I think that um, I, I, also at that time, I think those people who were getting into the political realm had to be real cautious about uh, association. Uh, with a radical group, because some people did see us as a radical group. Uh, they saw us as a militant group. Mm-hmm. And that's the way uh, we were being portrayed uh, by the status quo, that we were this militant group. That We were never being looked at like we were a grassroots group, which we were, who were trying to improve our communities and the lives of the Mexican-American community. You know, uh, the status quo would always look at us as this militant group, and I think uh, also because we wore, you know, uniform khakis and stuff, that made us look like we were this real militant group. But really, we were just trying to be organized in our work and also so that people could identify us. Uh, you know, as a group, a grassroots group who were working together. And at that period of time, you have to look, that's how identification was done, was what, how you wore, how you dressed. So that we were at that period of time of when that's how you express, you know, what group uh, you belong, whether, you know, it was the Black Berets or whether it was the Army and the Green Berets, you know, and us as the Brown Berets. So there was this really thing about having, you know, uniforms and the being together uh, and stuff like that. So, yes, mostly it was a community support, and that's really, that's really the people you really want until you get people in office who can understand that and who do then have to support the issues that you're working on. Because yeah. you gotta look at one thing too, is that at that time, uh, we're, they were developing, they put a, a power plant right in the middle of our neighborhood. They, they took all these homes that people live right around Fiesta Garden, and just, just you know, intimate domain. Mm-hmm. They were getting two or $3,000 for the home. They also, they had all the vacant property at the Fitch Hatchery, which is RBJ now. And instead of building a school there, because they had other plant, they went and took the Salvation Youth Army Center there on uh, where Sanchez Elementary is at. And it was just a little small section of land. There were houses all the way around, and they kicked everybody out of there, and they in the domain that hope. So... It, you know, there was a lot of injustice going on with a lot of people in that area, so they were really fed, fed up, you know. We didn't have any political power. We didn't have any kind of economic power, and we were getting, just getting pushed and pushed and pushed and taken. And so, you know, it wasn't very hard. They just didn't have the people there that, the you know, the ones that politicians that were elected at that time were trying to please the other people. They weren't really out there, you know, demanding a lot of justice. So that's where we came in and said, "That's just it, ya basta." You know, we were not going to take it no more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and when they people saw that we were not afraid to stand up. That's, they just came out and they just really supported us, and that's how we were able to, you know, do the things that we did because it was the people behind us that really pushed us. You know, we 
we wouldn't have never gotten there without the support of the barrio. Yeah, it was a lot of the people power, the community power. Really, it was a lot of empowerment of the community because um, that's who we had to rely on. You had to rely on the masses, the masses of the community uh, thrusting forward, showing up, packing the meetings, packing the city councils, you know, packing all the different meetings, you know, marching in the streets, taking signs. And so it was a lot of activism that was happening, and it was the community power itself, the empowerment of the community that was really driving the changes. Yeah. Uh, one of the, because now it's, I know that I'm going to cut it short in a little bit here, mm -hmm. but a question for each of you. Uh, your role, your involvement in the Brown Berets, what stands out has had the most impact in you and you, Susana, as to what really you're proud about, having been a Brown Beret member and, you know, what the outcome of it was? Well, the, the, the thing that makes me the proud uh, that, you know, the respect that that we have now in the community. Uh, uh, and we're slowly losing it now because the city's growing so big, but it gave us the dignity to look up and say, you know, we are equal to you. You know, you, the the power of West Austin. And, and that's what really, I mean, I feel good about it is because, you know, my kids can walk down the street you know, whether they're bl uh, black, brown, white, and not be afraid, you know. And that's that's what, you know, really, really I feel that we did, we accomplished that. We're not afraid of, uh, anymore. We're people of power now. So we're not, we're not bowing to anybody. And that's what, what we did. And the amazing thing about you and Lori is you're out there rubbing elbows with mayors and all of that also, and both of y'all are, mm -hmm. but that is the, the amazing thing about that I see. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go back and you, you, you know, uh, you listen to these interviews, you read these articles and so forth, is to know the struggle and then to see the outcome. Mm -hmm. And y'all are in very involved in politics and so forth, so that's, that's a... <laughs> That's what I see, and so obviously you have done some excellent work here. But now, Susana, what about you? Well, I'd I like to see, a, a, what I'm so proud of is that there was a lot of unity, is that uh, there was a lot of community involvement, participation. Uh, and to me, I mean, to me that's the key, is that you brought so many people together who realized that they did have a voice, that they weren't really voiceless. I think the empowerment of individuals, the empowerment of the community uh, is like the most beautiful thing that happened during that whole Brown Beret uh, movement was empowering the community to say, you're not voiceless. You can stand for something. You can voice to make changes, and you can be part of that change, you know, and you deserve changes in your community. Things should be better. And when I see the changes, even though now we're taking a back step with a lot of the gentrification, different issues that are now uh, impacting our community, but I see how far we progressed, that that movement had helped thrust us to the forefront 
of really uh, not being afraid, of not being afraid to speak up, you know, of working for justice, of saying that we have as much right as anyone else to equal education, uh, to not be oppressed by the police, to have housing, economic development, all of the issues that, you know, that we still work on today. Uh, but to say we have a right to be involved in that process and to make changes. And when I look at that movement, and I see people still working in different issues. Um, yeah, they're not with the Brown Berets. And some people have left. Some people are not as active. But some people remain very active. People have started their own organizations. You know, they started their own businesses. Uh, they're still involved in community issues, and so, and, and that we left seeds for that next generation, you know, because I run into some of those people, and they don't forget about being in the Brown Berets and being exposed to the Brown Berets, and always, you know, we got to keep, we got to keep fighting for the rights of our people. I think that too, as I see it, and as I see the progression that each of you have taken, and those individuals that were members. Uh, again, I find that to be very amazing because uh, as young people, you were out there, you were doing your thing, you could have very well gotten yourself into trouble, could have given up, you could have drifted in another direction, mm -hmm. you know, be into trouble with the police as far as being in jail, in prison, whatever. But it's amazing how each of you as members have taken that role, put it into the community and started to be, you know, very involved. I mean, the, the fact feel uh, that you ran for city council yeah. and Gilbert Diveta ran for city council mm -hmm. and uh, Paul Hernandez ran for a position. Marcos de Leon, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. also uh, ran and was elected. And I think he was the only one of the Brown Beret members that had been elected. Uh, elected. Um, but then again, too, I see, you know, where uh, uh, Zeke Uribe has got his PhD and I think Joanne Salas mm -hmm. also has got a PhD yes. uh, and so it is how you know uh, you see all of this that the struggle was very evident but again still the involvement with you Susana with Poder mm -hmm. and also we're still continuing to work with the youth mm -hmm. still being very active with that so now, let me ask you this question. As you look to the future, and Austin and the way that it's going, the expansion, everything, what do you see for those individuals, for the neighborhoods that you were really trying to fight for and to, you know, what do you see the future of that being? You really wanted my... I, I see it, it's, it's, I don't see how it's going to survive, you know, it's just, it's really heartbreaking to see the things that are, that are, you know, we're so close to downtown, nobody liked us back then, but now, you know, they say, oh, that's a gold mine over there. You know, when you have University of Texas teaching people how to flip property and you know you have all this money that's coming down from the the low bond low interest where these developers are just coming in and buying all the property up you know I see it like the reversal of what used to happen where you know it, the 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 developers wanted to break up uh, the white neighborhood they would 
sell one house to the black, and everybody would just leave the whole neighborhood, you know. Now it's just the reverse. These guys are coming in here paying big money for the houses, you know, property selling for $200,000, just the land itself, you know, in some of these locations. Uh, you got houses at um, Garden that's advertising right now at $640,000. You know, it just... There's no way that because the, the, the tax structure is set in this state and how the Republicans really want to punish us that we can survive in that little community because, you know, when you, the taxes are going up to be five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 a year, it's very hard for people to, to hang on there. And the homeowners are the ones that, well, they're, they're not going to get... They're not going to get hurt too much, but it's the renters. The renters are the ones that are just... I've seen people that have rented a house for 40 years in my community. 40 years. I thought they were land, And then all of a sudden, the next day, the owner sells the house off, and they have no place to go. They have to leave Pipe to Lockhart, Maynard, wherever they can find affordable housing. So we're losing our community slowly. But it's it's just going to be only the ones that are are the only ones that are going to be able to survive. There are the ones that you know either plan and saved up a lot of money so they can pay their taxes, you know, or the ones that the younger generation that you know was lucky enough to buy there that have good jobs. They're the ones that's going to stay there. But uh, our community is uh, it's slowly going to. Away. It's not deteriorating, but it's been taken away. Mm-hmm. That's the sad part. Uh, and for me, I, I do see, uh, I think now with the single-member districts finally coming in, that uh, there'll be that opportunity to at least uh, try and impact a lot of communities because, um, you know, I don't think Austin's going to get any smaller as far as the Latino community. I mean, uh, we're already in the schools where we make up like 65% of the population and we're about, I think, 37%, you know, give or take, of uh, the population here in Austin. Um, so I, I see, I, I think what's going to happen is what the city's always doing, you know. You know, one time we were on this side of Austin, on the west side here, around where the Austin History Center is, and now we're on the other side of the highway. And the new projection is the new East Austin starts at Highway 183. And I already see that development with all the money being thrown over there, the affordable housing that's being built, everything. And so it will be just a shift of where that new community is going to be starting and where it's going to be. And, and we already see a lot of the unwanted things going east of 183. So it's the new East Austin. <laughs> so I think that there's always going to be um, you know, the need to organize, the need to bring betterment to that new group of people that's going to be, you know, and that we always call the urban reservation because, you know, following the model, they want the land to move you, they want the land to move you, uh, that continues to happen. But I think that the, the new single member districts is going to be able to at least create some kind of balance because now you're going to have representatives <coughs> from those communities and. And it, uh, there's going to be a lot of education that needs to happen, uh, but they're also talking about their potential for three or four, you know, Latino districts, the possibility. So when you look at that and you see the growth, it's just making sure that you do that education and that you register the people and that the people that do get elected are 
are very um, sensitive <coughs> to the needs of the poor and the working poor and the community at large. I think that's really important because you can have people there, but they have no roots and then have no sense about what's happening in the community. So that's real important. So I, I still um, see a, a lot of di different hope because as our population be continues to grow here, I think that we're going to have um, a lot of power. And I, I know just now, you know, just in the few years that you've been here, how we've documented so much of the history that could have been lost forever about, you know, the Latino community, the things that they've done here, business people, educators, whatever. You know, we now have that documented. I see Silvia Orozco looking, working on the Fifth Street Corridor of the Mexican-American history from Republic Park on, making sure our history is in Republic Park. So I see a lot of the changing coming around where people really want to know a lot about our history, where they want to celebrate our history. You know, now the whole city celebrates Cinco de Mayo. This is it's now being celebrated at the state capitol. These are things that never happened before. So I think that there's been a lot of changes and I think that that change is going to continue to be, and because we have a constant influx of people, that um, we're all, always going to have to be looking at bilingualism, people coming in and having to continue to make sure that we have things that are bilingual and that the culture. So I still see that aquí estamos y no nos vamos, you know? We're here and we're not going. It's just that, yes, a lot of changes are maybe the old neighborhood is not going to be the way because we already see 78702. It was like the most gentrified five zip code in the whole nation so we know it's here but we also know that we're not gone yet and and that's supportive in that history having the roots you know and being able to just like document here of what's happening so people will know what was a struggle and that yes it takes a lot of struggle to make a lot of changes and, and that was a reason why we, we fought so hard for the Mexican American Culture Center. Yes. You know, it's uh, they wanted to give us a Fiesta Garden. I said, no, we're going to have it on the west side of 35 because it's going to remind people that, you know, the struggle that we had and we didn't want it to be isolated in some location where it's hard to get and people don't want people, traffic to come in there. And, and so it's those little things, you know, we we, we are not going to get forgotten. I, yes, our, our neighborhood is going to be gentrified. Would it be all white? I doubt it. There'll be, there's a lot of Rasa that's moving in there too. They're, they're a little more wealthier and they can afford those kind of places. But, you know, uh, most of the population going down south, Southeast, you know, those springs, where you mm -hmm. can, and that area. So, but yeah, East Austin, you know, we're we're gonna be there. I'm I'm not ha I'm not planning on moving and you know um, collect cans and do whatever I can to keep pay my taxes, you know. But going. <laughs> well, um, I do want to give. <coughs> Thank y'all for allowing me to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, you know, this is a small condensed version of an interview because there's so many questions, but at the same time, so many things that y'all have done as members and uh, so many, uh, 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 a lot of hard work. And uh, I know the at times there were people that really were looking at the Brown Berets as troublemakers and as everything else. But as history is going to show 
Um, it was, you know, it was done at a pace where, yes, they were doing what they felt needed to be done, and it was support of their community, the love for their community, the love for their family, the love for their neighborhoods. It was all, as you said, a unified mm-hmm. uh, uh, group of individuals, uh, young, yet at the same time uh, going from uh, feeling it in their heart. And uh, usually I know sometimes the heart over the brain can get you into trouble. But it's all right because that's what, you know, um, that's what uh, we were born with. Uh, You need to have uh, love and kindness for everyone. So I do thank you all for doing that. Now, there is one picture right there that is just, I think there's a celebration. And you all believe uh, you all were getting ready to, you all had just moved to the second Location, I think maybe. Um, this, yeah. Uh, but uh, this is just this is the only <laughs> photograph that we have mm-hmm. of the Brown Parade members as together is celebrating. Uh, and the names of the individuals we have them in the bag, but that happened. It looks like a very happy time for y'all, and there was. Uh, Uh, Are either one of you in that photo? Yes. Bill, okay, Mm -hmm. all right. Um, Where are you, Bill? Right there. With the mustache. That's Bobby Chapa. That's Sam Mendez. That's Roy. uh, Roy Soniga. No, Roy. uh, That's Roy uh, Antaveres. Oh, it says Roy Soniga. And that's Adela. That's Sam's daughter, and uh, that's Sam Mendes' wife and Sam Mendes' uncle there, and that's at the First Street, the one that could burn. But that is, um, that's one, like I said, the only photograph that we have of a gathering you know, I do have a. Uh, there's a there's a photograph. I have some, but I there's a photograph in the, when we were in the Q house too, mm. and it was a it was a, I saw it at the, at uh, Danny Ruiz Museum. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, and it was a, a real big photograph. They blew it up, and it was it's not there hanging anymore, but it was there yeah. uh, last year when I went by there. And I saw that photograph, and that was at the Cantonia House. Cantonia House. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all very much. I appreciate this. I am looking forward to the October 19th program when y'all will be on the panel along with Gilbert Rivera uh, and um, Lilia Rosas is going to be the moderator for oh, that panel yeah. discussion. So I thank you for that. And this is this is uh, that's Jose, the guy that talked you talked to yesterday oh, or the day before yesterday. He is in every picture, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I was Jose really Cantu. impressed oh, Jose with him. <laughs> I was impressed wow. with him because um, he seems to be in a lot of photographs, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> I, I, I am hoping that I will be able to do an oral history okay, interview okay. with him. He's a he's yes. a he's a veteran marine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but you know, I have learned so much, and um, and this is very important again that we document all of this. She she's a executive aide of uh, uh, the church, uh, Greg Hamilton. Oh, 
the other Sam's daughter. The, uh, mm-hmm. What's her name? I can't remember. Oh, she was one of the. This this young lady here, she was so good. I mean, she was one of the best fundraiser or that. I mean, she would go to a person's door and and they would never tell her no. She was just so good at raising funds for us and everything. She was just a darling. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. I appreciate it. And um, looking forward to exhibits and to all. I mean, we have a full month of October, lots of little events, and hopefully we have done justice to everything because it needs to be documented. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Yeah, you could call her. She, she worked for Greg Hamilton. Okay, Greg Hamilton. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's, uh, that's her dad, Sam Mendes. Mm-hmm. And that's Florence. I mean, uh, is that Florence? That's her name? I, I can get you her name. Okay. If you ever want it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was one of the, the young. The younger okay. ones. How yeah. different Jose Cantu looks here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Recognize him with his hair. I kept thinking, who is that? And now you're telling me that's Jose Cantu? Yeah. Well, because I can't recognize him with that hair. <laughs> wow. That's Jose Cantu, are you mm-hmm. sure? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and you see, if it, if, 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 he wouldn't have said until that photograph, that, mm-hmm. in, that newspaper article that y'all were looking at mm-hmm. that has you and Adela and him. Mm-hmm. And it just says, and that's why I had to mm-hmm. ask, are you sure that he was a member? Let me see the... Uh, yeah, it's just like, right here. that was the thing. It was like, oh my God. Um, yeah. yeah, last time that we were there for Cinco de Mayo, there's in there somewhere, it's, a, yeah, it's him and... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I don't want to remember your glasses. But Bio and Adela and, and Jose. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh my God, you know, he's in every picture. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, he's in that very popular picture that, uh, what's his name? Uh, who was the Yeah, he's in, he's in that Ruiz library at that, that cute house. He's in there uh, too. Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, Jose, I saw your picture. He said, what? Well, I said, what? <laughs> yeah, we just, I just chose some to put in there. But it's like, you know, try to put it in chronological time period. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you ever get find that picture when the one that we were at the San Marcos when we had the meeting with the police chief? Uh-huh. Yes, and that's going to be in the exhibit. That will be in the exhibit. That part, yeah. That's the guy from Dallas. Oh, yeah, that's one. Mm-hmm. Is that Father Josanata? Sure is. Father Josanata's right there. Yeah, in the, um, in the exhibit, he will, uh, the Father Sonatas will be there. In the online, uh, Pete Martin, oh, oh, and Pete Martinez also. Mm-hmm. But in the online, it will, it will have both of them too. So, there's oh, the there's picture. Oh, there's Bio and, uh, yeah. oh, that's Jose that's there? Jose, that's oh, that's right, that's now. Jose and Angie. <laughs> and it does, it says Jose Cantu. <laughs> but I didn't know he was a member of, you know, Mm-hmm. And so, until he mentioned that, yeah, <laughs> he wasn't a very uh, 
he wasn't in the leadership though at all. Let's say what's Just a member of that. That's why you probably didn't hear much about him. But he sure wasn't the pictures of him. Yeah, he managed to get into the pictures. So. But yeah. Oh, that's Sam's little other little daughter. Oh, okay. <laughs>